Um, I know you know this already, but one of Shakespeare's greatest history plays uh, was Henry V. And many a schoolchild has had to learn lines from this play. So forgive me if suddenly it's going to start bringing back bad memories and you go into uh, tremors. But do you remember this? We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. The play actually was based around the historical events that uh, came before and after the Battle of Agincourt that took place in the year 1415, when the English army defeated a far larger French army and Henry went on to marry the French king's daughter. And the very oldest ones here, and it will be the very oldest ones here, may remember the film of the play that was made in 1944 and starred Laurence Olivier. It was deliberately made at that time to remind the British people of their history. And it was released very deliberately at the time of the Normandy invasion, when the Allied forces began their major push to end the Nazi occupation of Europe. You see, there were lessons to learn from history, lessons to do with bravery and national pride and courage. And by releasing that film then, the whole intent was to say, look, this is who we are. This is our history. This is what we do. And we need to remember every time we come back to our studies in Genesis that this accurate historical account had been compiled and edited and released at the time of the Israelite exodus from Egypt and their subsequent invasion of Canaan. You see, God intended his people to learn lessons from the historical accounts that they were now reading. And hearing. They were lessons to do with purity and with separation and with distinctiveness. And in our most recent studies, we noticed how God repeats his promises to Abram about a son there in chapter 17. And in the following chapter, he confirms this promise to Sarah, who was Abraham's wife as well. And we pick up the story as the Lord and two angels who've appeared to Abraham in human form are leaving from where that nomad, Abraham, was camped. And they start walking down toward the city of Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot now lives. And what we'll find in the two chapters we're looking at this evening are lessons about compassion and warnings against compromise. For there are lessons you see here that God is teaching Abraham about his character. Firstly, what becomes apparent is that God hates sin and will deal with it. 
Now, uh, so many of us here take this for granted. You probably go, duh. You know, we, we, we know that. I, you know, I go to church. I'm a Christian. We know this. We know that God hates sin. Do you really need to underline that for us? But could I say it was certainly not the way that they thought in Abraham's day. Nor actually is it the way I think people think today in our society. You see, in Canaanite society, it was always possible to bribe the local deity to give you what you wanted. And so there were numerous fertility gods that promised you blessing if you engaged in the fertility rituals or if you sacrificed your children. But there was very little sense of justice, very little sense of purity. The rich and the powerful prospered while women and the poor were abused. Yet here is Yahweh God declaring before Abraham that sin is serious and must be dealt with. And could I say that modern Western man thinks and acts in many ways that are similar to the society that was inhabited by Abraham 4,000 years ago. The deity he creates today is not one of holiness, but one of convenience. There are no absolute standards. Today, we'll keep moving the goalposts to suit us and keep us happy. And any idea today that sinners might face the judgment of God is treated with horror and indeed fury. The God that they create is one who turns a blind eye, a God of shifting values, a God who is indulgent, a God who is like some cuddly, bearded Father Christmas character. And, and actually, of course, that may well be where you're coming from. It's as novel for you as it was for the people of Abraham's day to encounter the truth that the living God is absolutely holy and must deal with your sin and failure. But it is the consistent teaching of the Bible. But then secondly, Abraham learns that not only is God just, but actually his justice is entirely fair and true. You see, God could have meted out his justice upon Sodom and Gomorrah without ever visiting Abraham. But he is giving Abraham a very practical demonstration of how seriously and carefully and, and fairly he deals with sin. Have a, a look there in chapter 18, verses 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. You see, there's nothing arbitrary, there's nothing unfair about the justice of God. And Abraham is learning through this visual aid that God's knowledge of what goes on is perfect and complete. Nothing is overlooked. No facts are ignored. No evidence is hidden. God sees into the deepest recesses of the human heart. 
And can I just say in passing that if you're here and you think that God does not see or has forgotten or will overlook what you've done, then you're flying in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture. That is not the God who is revealed in this book. But there's more that Abraham is to learn. In verse 22, we read this. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, if you have an NIV, if you have one of the church Bibles with you, you'll notice that it gives a footnote indicating that there is an alternative reading to this verse. And actually, most commentators are agreed that this verse should be read with the, as it were, the footnote translation. But the Lord remained standing before Abraham. That, that's the better translation. But the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Now, this is audacious. When someone stood before another like this, it indicated that they would follow the other person's guidance which actually is why some of those early scribes changed the wording around because they thought they were correcting an earlier mistake. How could God do this? Oh, no, they, they must have got that wrong, around the wrong way. No, no, no. The Lord is really inviting Abraham's questions about his actions. And so begins a round of questions with Abraham seeking to discover how God will balance the judgment of the wicked with the delivery of the righteous. Have a look at verses 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And as the numbers decrease from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, Abraham is trying to find out how much value God places on the righteous. For he's not asking that the righteous should be saved from the city, when you look at the text, he's asking that the city should be saved because of the righteous. Can the righteous affect the fate of the wicked? So what are we to make of all of this? Is it just a story of Middle Eastern haggling? If you've ever been to a souk or a market, you'll know how that goes. Or is it an object lesson that is revealing more of the character of God. You see, we need to understand that God is more just than we'd ever feared. And at the same time, he is more gracious than we could ever dream of. He is the God of grace and mercy, as well as the God of justice and truth. And that should both challenge us and it should give us Hope. You see, our sins, our failings, our sins are infinitely vile. For each one of us here, they are beyond covering up. 
Yet the righteousness of the crucified and risen Jesus is amply sufficient to deal with sin and rescue sinners. You see, uh, Jesus is the hero of this book. This is the whole trajectory of this book. This is where Genesis is pointing. It is about the one who would come with a righteousness and an obedience. The one sent from God. The one who was God incarnate. Who went and died as part of God's plan on a cross. So that sinners and failures and rebels like us could be rescued and redeemed. And as the story moves into the events of chapter 19, let's be clear, it must be the big picture and purpose that shapes our understanding of this chapter. For inevitably, it's the more outrageous sins of chapter 19 that seem to have caught the attention of so many. And debate rages over the homosexual rape and gangbang that's attempted in verse 5. And whilst it is clear that this is what is being described here, many seem to overlook the incestuous heterosexual rape that actually occurs at the end of the chapter. Now, let's be clear. The Bible consistently regards homosexual practice as contrary to God's word and God's will. And although some have attempted to explain away the Bible's teaching, their efforts have always failed to do justice to the text. Now, look, I understand you may not like that. You may find such teaching to be deeply offensive in the age in which we live. But the truth remains, this is the clear and unambiguous message of the Bible. But the events of chapter 19 are not primarily about the nature of homosexual practice. We need to grasp that we'd be missing the big picture if we limit our attention to these events. No, I want to suggest that essentially chapter 19 is about Lot and the consequences of compromising with a pagan culture. You see, this was a lesson that the Israelites needed to grasp as they were on their way out of Egypt and they were entering Canaanite territory. And it's a lesson, could I say, that we need to learn if we are to be distinctive followers of Christ. If you're here and you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then we've got something to learn here about what it means to live for Jesus in our age. So let's track Lot's decline and the unwise choices he made. When we were back in chapter 13, we noticed how Abraham and his nephew Lot had to separate because of the growing size of their herds and how Lot made that decision which resulted in him and his family moving towards that city of Sodom. Let me say a few things about this. Number one, it was a sense-dictated choice. It was a sense-dictated choice. You see, Lot didn't seem to seek God 
about the choice that was put to him by Abraham. Instead, he based his decision on what he saw. And tellingly, he went towards Sodom because Sodom was like the land of Egypt. We get that in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 13. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. You see, Lot had seen what conditions were like in Egypt. He'd been down there. He'd seen how the Nile Delta would regularly flood, which produced enormous areas of fertile land, with all the prosperity that went with that. And he wanted that. He admired the Egyptians with their power and with their wealth. They were the superpower on the block at that time. It seemed a good place to be. But it was a sense-dictated choice. Secondly, it was also a self-centered choice. Did you notice that telling expression? Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. The reality is, as, many, as any Middle Eastern dweller will tell you, that Lot should never have accepted Abram's offer. He should have acknowledged his uncle's seniority. He should have honored his family duties. After all, he was the closest that they had to a son. And what does he do? He deserts them. He thinks only of himself. It was a self-centered choice. But then thirdly, notice it was a short-sighted choice. See, Lot gave no thought to the effect his choice would have on the spiritual well-being of his family. He was only thinking in terms of his own prosperity and comfort, and he was ignoring the larger and the more important issues. We read this in uh, chapter 13, verse 12. Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. But then when we come into chapter 14, Lot has gone from pitching his tents near Sodom to living in the city. We, we get that from chapter 14, verse 12. They, that is raiders from the east, also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And by the time we arrive in chapter 19, and the two angelic visitors arrive in Sodom, Lot now occupies a position of leadership and responsibility. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. You see, this position of sitting in the gateway of a city was one of honor. It was where the city elders sat. So Lot not only lives in Sodom now, he's actually playing a full role in that society. He's immersed in it. He's gone against what he had seen in Abraham. He has compromised his beliefs. 
And it's not as if he doesn't know what city life is like in Sodom. You see, when the two angelic visitors arrive, he is so insistent that they don't spend the night in the town square, as some would have done in those days. Rather, he makes them go with them, him, and, and then prepares them a meal in a hurry because he is aware of what might happen. We read this in verses 2 to 3. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did not go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. But sure enough, word had got round about the visitors and the men of the city surround Lot's house. And in a desperate attempt to placate the crowd and to maintain the strict honor code of protecting your guests, Lot even offers his virgin daughters to the crowd. We get this in verses 4 to 8. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. And then things begin to unravel big time. The consequences of his compromise become apparent. Lot starts to lose everything that he valued. First of all, he lost his place in the community. You see, it would seem that he'd worked so hard to be accepted within the city of Sodom. But at the first sight of him standing up against others... To do what is right, the real colors of the Sodom city dwellers become apparent. Chapter 19, verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Suddenly, all the niceties of social convention have disappeared. Lot, the city elder, is described as an immigrant. He's an alien. But did you notice the very telling word in what the crowd said? Now, now he wants to play the judge. Now. It would appear that this was the first time Lot had ever stood up against what was going on in the city. The first time he had voiced his disapproval. The first time he had suggested another course of action. And it was all too late all too inconsistent. He was all too compromised. He lost his place in the community. Secondly, he lost his extended family. You see, the focus narrows down. The destruction of the city is imminent, and the angels encourage him to warn others in his family about what is going to happen. We read this in verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry! And get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. 
that they thought he was joking. What tragic words. They didn't take him seriously. To them, it made no sense. You can imagine them asking each other, you know, who is this Lord that he's now speaking about who would judge people like us? Clearly, Lot had failed to tell them about Yahweh, the living, the true and only God. He had failed to tell them about his holy character and about his just demands. So that now Lot's warnings are all too late. All too inconsistent, he was all too compromised. And then thirdly, he lost his wife. The sun was about to rise and the destruction was about to descend, so the angelic visitors grab the hands of Lot, his wife, and their two daughters, and they pull them away out of the city, and they warn them, verse 17, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot's wife didn't listen to the warning. There was something about living in Sodom that was so attractive to her. Whatever it was, it becomes clear that she doesn't share Lot's values and grasp of the situation. And she lingers and longingly looks back. Verses 24 to 26. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. So Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Probably, actually, she was overcome and killed by the sulfurous fumes. And before her body had time to decompose, uh, decompose, it becomes salt-encrusted. And it remained as a testimony to her foolishness. And certainly her story continued down through the generations because we read this in Luke chapter 17 in the New Testament. Jesus warns his followers about those who should be taking God's judgment far more seriously. He said this, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Had Lot tried to warn her? Probably. But his warnings were too late. All too inconsistent. He was all too compromised. But then, finally, Lot lost his reputation. You see, Lot eventually ends up staying in a cave with his daughters, the, the very ones that he'd offered to the lustful mob. It seems he's lost everything because of his compromises, but there's one thing remaining that is to disappear as well. It is his reputation. For his daughters get him drunk, they have sex with him one night after the other, as a result of which a son is born to each of them. And here's the sting from these boys originate the tribes that gave Israel the greatest trouble, the Moabites and the Ammonites. We read this, verses 36 to 38. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. 
So can you see that this chapter actually is not primarily about sexuality? It's about compromise. It was recorded for people about to enter the very area that was being described. And actually, this was to be the constant teaching of Moses. Moses who compiled the Genesis history. Listen to him as he addresses the Israelites just before they enter Canaan. A long quote here, but it's worth going through. Deuteronomy 6, and then go, uh, and we'll look at some verses from Deuteronomy 7. Moses says this to the Israelites, When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God. Make no treaty with them, that is the Canaanite nation. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And actually, it is this very principle, this very teaching, probably this very passage that it's the Apostle Peter, he takes and applies to all those who name Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This wasn't just from 4,000 years ago. This was to the New Testament church. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12, Peter writes to them and says, but you are a chosen people. These are people who know and love and follow Jesus. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, look, I'm, I'm really conscious as we've been going through this, this chapter. Norma, you try and avoid a chapter like this. It's not the first thing you go to preach about. But this is the Bible, and we want to take it in a consistent, expository manner. And we have to say, it is here in God's words. So how can we summarize the message of Genesis 19? I think we can do it very briefly in two ways. Number one, recognize that compromise destroys. 
recognize that compromise destroys. If ever there is a warning for God's people about the dangers of settling down in this sin-soaked, sick society, it is here with Lot. Can I just uh, address some words to those of you who are students here? Some of you may be freshers. You've come away from home and you are settling into a new context and there's a lot of freedom. Hey, you've come to uni and it's probably not where you live and you're able to live in halls or in some digs somewhere and boy, it's freedom. And if you are someone who names Jesus as Lord and Savior, the pressure is upon you, really is, to compromise. See, I'm so conscious in terms of some of the things I have said as being true from God's word you go can you say that and I have to say yeah you have to say it's 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 in the bible it's what the bible teaches and guys gals can I just say the the pressure to conform is going to be massive the pressure to compromise is going to be massive whether that's if there is a particular drinking culture you have in, in halls or whether there's a particular culture of uh, sleeping around or, or whatever the pressures upon you you're going to be under pressure and I just want to say look if we take God's word seriously beware because compromise destroys I want you to be the person you are in Jesus I want you to be strong I want you to be able to name him I want you to be able to stand aside from stuff which isn't helpful. And I want you to throw yourself in with all your might to stuff that's really good. And enjoy every moment of your university life. Recognize that compromise destroys. But secondly, remember that compassion delivers. Remember that compassion delivers. For what is amazing with this account is the mercy of God. For the sake of Abraham, God rescued Lot. The angels dragged them away from the destruction. And for the sake of Jesus, the hero, God rescues his people today. Even when they fail, even when they compromise. And you may be here and you're a second, third year postgrad student and you're going, Andy, if only you knew. Look, Jesus rescues his people, even when they compromise, even when they bring dishonor on his name, God will still deliver them from his holy anger. Now, guys, if, if you're hearing what I'm saying and saying you've got to say no, 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 no. To, look, there are times when you do have to say no. That, that's clear enough. I hope that's obvious enough. There are times when you just got to say, I'm going to stand apart from that. But could I say the thrust is in this chapter of compassion. It begins with Abraham. He knows about Sodom. He knows the character of that city of Sodom. And what is he doing? He is pleading with God, rescue that city. Deliver that city. And we are those who live in Edinburgh who are here for the well-being, for the glory of Edinburgh and the people in its precincts. We want God to bless them richly. And we're going to do everything we can to do good to our colleagues, to our fellow students. We're going to bless them in every way possible. We're going to do them good. 
It doesn't mean you enter fully into the stuff that is on the periphery that is unhelpful. But it does mean you're with love and mercy and gentleness, with grace, with careful language. You're going to bless folks. And you're going to take your stand. And you're going to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. He is the greatest treasure. He's the one that satisfies my soul. He is the one I want to be more like than anyone else. Oh, the world and its celebs may paint a particular picture and say, go on, try this, try that. And you say, but I want to be like Jesus. God give you the strength and the courage and the boldness. Whether you're a student or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, to live for the glory of the King. Let's pray.